book of Acts, chapter 3. It's already been a good day in church. Dwight, I think you can sing higher now that you've shaved. I just seemed like you had a lot more bounce up here. All that weight is gone. It's just a good day to be together in church. It's uh, great songs, great singing. You'll be fascinated to discover that since we're uh, coming from the same source, my message today is going to sound a lot like the messages we heard in those songs this morning. That's why we sing those songs. Acts chapter 3, we are working our way through the book of Acts together. I love this book. Uh, It's a little bit, if you've ever uh, sat under preaching of a narrative book where the the whole book of Acts is basically giving an account of historical events that happened. That's a different kind of uh, study. That's a different kind of preaching because you're not dealing with, like, you know, I think if, if I said, turn, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, I bet you in three guesses you could figure out what the subject of that message was going to be, Right? But the book of Acts is a narrative book in that it is giving us the historical account of uh, what we call it the Acts of the Apostles, the early New Testament church. It starts with Peter, it shifts over to Paul, and we have all of these events. And what do you do uh, with this book? How can you apply this book? And I won't say this morning that uh, the way I apply it is the only way you can apply it, but isn't it fascinating that we can take what the Bible says about what these men and women of God did and still apply it 2,000 years later to our lives. We've been working our way verse by verse through the book of Acts just to get you up to speed and remind you where we are. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way, right? Remember that song? That is where we are in the book of Acts. Uh, There was a lame man that every single day was brought to the gate, which is called Beautiful, sat there at that gate and begged to make, uh, to make ends meet, to provide for himself. Every single day he was there at the gate. And on this day, Peter and John went in to the temple at the time of prayer in the afternoon. And they encountered this man. And Peter looked on this man and he said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he grabs him by the hand, rise up and walk. And the man jumps to his feet. And now, where we are in Acts chapter 3, this man is leaping and jumping and praising the Lord for what has happened in his life. He's causing quite a spectacle. And there was a crowd gathering at a place in the temple called Solomon's Porch. And so Peter is looking around. He sees this crowd gathering. He hears the commotion. Uh, that is happening, and he takes the opportunity to preach the gospel here in the temple on Solomon's porch. And so picking up then at verse 12, we're going to read down through the remainder of the chapter before we jump into uh, the message together. So look at verse 12 of Acts chapter 3 with me. It says, And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, Why marvel ye at this, or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? 
The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through your ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before has showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled." Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. This, uh, this morning we're going to take the remainder of this chapter and break it into four parts. And as we do that together, consider this question. The lame man was completely transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Are you acquainted in your own life with the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you acquainted in your own life with the transforming power of the gospel? Let's find out. We see Peter here, first of all, in verse 12, deflecting praise. Deflecting praise. It says in verse 12, When Peter saw it, the crowd gathering, the commotion, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? Notice that Peter did not call this crowd together. He did not form the group. He did not need to assemble the crowd, but he realizes very quickly that there is a crowd forming around the three of them, Peter, John, and the formerly lame man. Apparently, someone or several people were asking questions about what had happened and how it happened. And so Peter was giving them an answer here, and his answer is twofold. He's deflecting praise. First of all, he says, this is not our power. This is not our power. God is the source of this miracle. Peter says that Christ is the reason that a lame man leapt up and walked. Isn't it incredible? Have you considered this? That this man who was lame from birth was healed. All right? It says that his feet and his ankle bones received strength. You all have heard of physical therapy, right? 
This lame man had no PT. None. Not only was, were his feet and ankle bones healed, but in that instant, he knew how to walk. He knew how to jump around. He knew how to dance. He was making a spectacle there. The formerly lame man who had not taken a step since birth was walking and leaping and praising God. What an incredible miracle this was. And this gathered a crowd. And Peter said, listen, this is not our power. We did not do this thing. Jesus Christ is the power that transforms lives. Jesus Christ is the reason that the lame man's life would never be the same again. God sent the Spirit to the apostles, and His power worked in them and through them. And immediately Peter says, this is not us, this is God. This is Jesus Christ. They never claimed to be anything other than servants working for the Lord and proclaiming His message. They never claimed the power in and of themselves. This is not our power. All the way back in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, we have the words of the Lord where it says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Peter said, listen, this isn't something that's in us. It's not our holiness. It's not our power. This is Jesus Christ. This is the power of God. Paul the Apostle, in a similar way, deflected praise and declared that all of his ministry was done by the power of God and, in, and for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5 through 5 says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What is it exactly that makes the ministry of the church effective and transformative? Is it our methods? Is it our music? Is it our atmosphere or the members that we have here? Is it, is it the, the talent pool that we've got or the location that we're in? Or is it our particular affiliations or denominations? Perhaps sometimes we as Christians forget where the power in the church really lies. Author Jamie Buckingham was visiting a dam on the Columbia River. And he was observing the water spilling over the top of the dam. And he always thought that it was all of this water spilling over the top, all of the foam and all the activity that provided the power. But what he didn't realize is that all of that activity and all that movement was just froth. It wasn't doing anything. That deep within the dam were turbines and generators that were transforming the power of tons of water into electricity without being noticed quietly underneath. Unlike all the flashy but powerless activity on top. Perhaps we forget where the power really lies. Many Christians and churches today are a lot like the man from Kentucky who tried and tried and tried to start his car, the press reported. And then when he lifted his hood, he discovered 
someone had stolen the motor. Everything looked fine outside, looked normal, seemed all right, but there was no power under the hood. Where does your power lie? Do you have the power of God in your life? Even John and Peter, the apostles, in the inner circle of Christ said, listen, it's not us. We didn't do this. The power is in Christ. It's not our power. It's not our holiness. It's not our holiness. Peter could have taken this opportunity to establish a reputation for himself. He could have. He could have laid claim to authority over these people, but he didn't. He had every opportunity to take all the credit and enjoy all the fame and the popularity to build his own following and to take ownership of this multitude. But Peter's attitude was that of the other apostles. For example, the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says in verses 5 and 6, not that we are sufficient of ourselves, to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Paul said it's God that has given us the ability to serve. It is God that has given us and appointed us to this ministry. And Peter instantly turns the credit back to Jesus Christ. Hey, how quick are you to turn the credit back to Christ? How quick are you to give glory to God for all he's done in your life? How quick are you to tell your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, and others that you interact with that it is God that has transformed you and that your relationship with Christ is the key to the life that you live? Apart from Jesus Christ, you would be nothing. Everything that you are is because Christ dwells within you and has transformed you. John 15, Jesus said in verses 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do something. No, it, for without me, ye can do nothing. You know, so very often, and I'm not singling anyone out here, but so very often, we as Christians, we act like our lives are our own success stories. My life, I made all the right choices. Bless God, I, I did what He told me to do. And our lives are our own success stories. We've become proud of how polished we are. We have to remember that Jesus said, listen, without me, you're nothing. And we need to be like Peter. Hey, this wasn't my power. Not my holiness, this is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And give all glory to God, deflecting praise. And then we find Peter denouncing their unbelief. Denouncing their unbelief. What incredible boldness he has. In verses 13 through 15, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus 
whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Now Peter addresses the unbelief of the Jews. He confronts them with this truth. You killed your Messiah. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected the Messiah. uh, Peter tells them, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of the God of Abraham. He is the Holy One and the just. He is proclaiming Jesus as the eternal Son of God. He does not say that Jesus became the Son of God, as some others would proclaim, but rather He is God. He is the promised seed of Abraham, the one God told him would come through his lineage. In Genesis 12, verse 3, it says, I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. He's talking about the Messiah that would come. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Peter is proclaiming that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the promised Messiah that would come through the seed of Abraham. And the Jews had denied Jesus by refusing to accept who he was. They refused to accept his, his divinity. He proclaimed himself as God. They also refused to accept him as their ruler and Lord. In John nineteen fifteen, in just an incredible amount of just, it seems like, oh, it's just so ironic and so heartbreaking. In John 19, 15, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Perhaps someone here today has refused to accept Jesus Christ for who he is. Perhaps you know about Jesus but you've never, you never have submitted to his authority over your life. He's never been your Lord or Savior. Perhaps there's someone here that's rejected their own Messiah, their own Savior, Jesus Christ, because he refused to come to the grips with the fact, as the Jews did, that not only is he God, your creator, but he's also Lord. He knows what's best and right for each and every one of us. He made us. He has authority over us. And in refusing his word and what his word says about who Jesus Christ is, you're refusing your own salvation and eternal life. You're condemning your own soul. And Peter says you need to repent. You need to accept Jesus Christ for who he is, God's son, the promised one, and receive him as your own personal Lord and Savior. They rejected their Messiah, and in doing so, they even requested a murderer. They requested a murderer. The chief priests and the Pharisees were so adamantly opposed to Jesus that they stirred up the people to ask for a murdering criminal to be released back into society rather than to allow Jesus to live. Isn't that a striking measure of how adamant they were 
in their refusal to accept Jesus as their Messiah. Matthew 27, 21, the governor Pilate answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate, as a politician and a diplomat, was trying, trying to find common ground here, trying to quiet things down in his own way. And so he put up a criminal, a murderer, thinking, surely, this man's done, Jesus has done nothing wrong, surely. They'll come to their senses and they'll pick Jesus. But no, they chose the murderer instead. What are you pursuing in place of Christ? What are you pursuing in place of Christ? You know, the pleasures of this world may look good and the happiness that this world promises might seem enticing, but you'll never find satisfaction if you refuse your Savior. And in pursuing something in place of Christ, you've unwittingly requested a murderer who will destroy your life and send your soul to a real and eternal hell. As Peter preached, you need to denounce your unbelief and place your trust in Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. They requested a murderer instead of their Messiah. And then notice he denounces their unbelief. He's deflected their praise. And now he's declaring the gospel. Declaring the gospel. He says, and now, brethren, I want or I know that through your ignorance he did it, as did also your, your rulers. But those things which God before has showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer... He has so fulfilled, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And ye shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Peter declares the gospel that was already prophesied in Scripture. It was prophesied in Scripture. Peter says, all right, I realize that you did not realize what you were doing. That Jesus himself said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They did not realize the scale of what they were doing, crucifying their own Messiah, the Jews believed that their Messiah would remain on earth and rule and reign forever. But in reality, not only did Jesus die on the cross and rise again three days later, he's ascended up into heaven. Acts 1 verse 9 says, When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, Jesus was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And this is what Peter is saying. Jesus has been received up into heaven. He'll stay there until the last times. And there's some argument as to what the, the phrase, their times are refreshing or restitution of all things might refer to in history exactly, but we won't spend any time on that. But the point is this, Jesus will come back at the time appointed. He's been received up into heaven. It could be any minute now that he comes back. And Peter also points out that from Moses to John the Baptist, every single one of the prophets have spoken of the Messiah. 
This gospel that Peter is preaching was prophesied already. There's a second coming, a coming in which the Lord and Savior, that same Jesus, will come to be the judge of all the earth. And as king, he'll pour out his wrath on all mankind for the rejection of him and for their persecution of the saints. But before that great and terrible day, Jesus will call his church home to be with him. There's a lot you could unpack here in Peter's sermon, but, but the point is this. The Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. He's died in our place. God has received him up into heaven, and he is coming back. And the question is this. Are you ready? Are you sure? It's been prophesied in Scripture. And then notice the path of Scripture that Peter lays out. He lays out the exclusive means of salvation, the one and only way in which sinners are forgiven and saved. He says you need to repent. You need to, re to repent. In order to accept salvation, these people had to literally change their minds about who Jesus was. I mean, they had seen him. They may have been in the mob that cried out, crucify him. They had previously rejected him, and now they must come to a new conclusion that Jesus is, in fact, their Messiah. When was your moment of repentance? When was it for you that you changed your mind about yourself, your sin, your need of a Savior? When, when was that for you that you repented? When was it that you came to grips with who Jesus is and what the Bible says? You know, lots has been said and written about repentance. Someone said remorse is being sorry. Repentance is being sorry enough to stop. Another person said repentance to be of any avail must work a change of heart and conduct. I don't know exactly how it all works, but I do remember as a nine-year-old boy, feeling the weight of my own sin. At nine years old, I hadn't done a whole lot, but I was pretty confident I was a sinner. Nobody had to argue that point with me. And as a nine-year-old boy, I realized the gravity of my sin. And I cried out to Christ for salvation. That was my moment of repentance. That was when I changed my mind about Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Have you repented? And then he says, be converted. Be converted. Repent, be converted. It reminds me of what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, where he says, For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their salvation, their repentance changed their whole life. They turned to God from idols and they served God. Peter mentions here, your sins will be blotted out. I love this phrase, the blotting out of sins, because it's taken from the practice of creditors charging their debtors. And when the debt is paid, they cancel it by removing the record of it. Colossians 2 talks about it also. It says in verses 13 through 15, that you being dead in your sins, 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The phrase blotting out could literally mean to rub out, to wipe off, to erase. And in that day, the ink was often water-soluble and could be literally wiped off the page. You could go to museums and find ancient manuscripts to this day that have evidence of being used over and over and over again because they would wipe them clean and use the same paper over again. Do you know the forgiveness of God? Have your sins been wiped out, erased, blotted out of the record? Has God wiped your record clean with the blood of Christ? Has your guilt and your shame be been taken away through the blood of Jesus Christ? Has that burden been lifted from you? Because it can. If you truly place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that God literally wipes it all away, your sin. I like that. I like that a lot. And if you've never experienced that burden being lifted from you, it can be if you'll be converted and place your faith in Christ. And then Peter says, enjoy the times of refreshing. You know, the benefits of salvation, they're available to us right now. We have eternal life. We are the children of God in Christ. We have the adoption of sons. We, we have all of these things, as, as Ephesians says, all of these heavenly blessings in Christ Jesus we get to experience right now. And we sing all these songs, and I love these songs, but you need to remember this. The Christian life is not just the sweet by and by. There can be the sweet here and now in Christ. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And as Hebrews 12, 2 says, we are to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of looking towards the end and having peace and joy in the present. I love the song, but have you ever considered the words? Life has purpose now. It never had before. There is meaning to each, each day and even more. For a joy and peace I can't explain is mine since I found new life in Christ my Lord divine. I can go directly to the Lord in prayer. He has told me I may boldly enter there. And he listens as his promises I plead. I find mercy there and grace for every need. And the hope of heaven's glories thrill me soul. so. Where I'll live with Christ forevermore, I know. That is why the things of earth I loosely hold, I've eternal riches better far than gold. Oh, it is wonderful to be a Christian. Oh, it is wonderful to be God's child. Oh, it is wonderful to have your sins forgiven. Oh, it is wonderful to be redeemed, justified, forever reconciled. Do you remember the promise that Jesus gave in John 10, 10? The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. 
Let me ask you, do you have and enjoy the abundant life in Christ that he's given you? There's a lot of Christians that just they're just not, they're just miserable and they're no fun to be around. They bring a little cloud with them wherever they go. I can't wait till heaven. <laughs> Folks, you have eternal life right now. Right now. Are you enjoying that abundant life in Christ? And if not, why? why? What is hindering your joy in Christ? Is it sin in your life? That'll steal your joy away. Is it bitterness or resentment? What is coming between you and your joy in the Lord? Because there's a time of refreshing right now for you as a Christian. And that ought to be evident. He declares the gospel, the time of refreshing, the conversion, the repentance. And then he describes this miracle. He says in verse 16, His name, Jesus Christ, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is in by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Peter declares there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. It was in the name of Jesus that, that Peter commanded healing for this lame man. It was in the name of Jesus that Paul cast out demons. In Acts 16, verse 18, a possessed girl followed Paul, and she did it many days, and Paul finally had enough. It says, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. There's power in the name of Jesus. And there's power and strength to be had in the name of the Lord. All the way back in the book of Psalms, you'll read in Psalm 20, verses 5 through 7, we will rejoice in thy salvation. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. There's power in the name of Jesus. By the way, this is extra credit. When the psalmist wrote, some trust in chariots and horses, he could have said, some trust in tanks. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. God has given all power to Jesus. There's no other name with more authority and might than the name of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He declares the power in the name of Jesus. He preaches faith in the name of Jesus. And that's the gospel that we preach, the gospel of the faith in Christ. It's faith in the name of Jesus Christ that transforms hearts and the souls of men. It's faith in Christ. Our faith stands not in man's methods or wisdom, but in the power of God and in the name of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, we read already, but notice it again in verses 4 and 5. It says, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, 
but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul was a trained Pharisee. He could have preached to the church. Now, you know what Rabbi so-and-so said, and you know so-and-so's interpretation of this passage in the Torah, but no, he says, I didn't do that. I preached Christ and him crucified. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of Paul or of Apollos or any other man, but in the power of God. Faith in any other name is not saving faith because only those that believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. John 3.16 is a verse that's familiar to you, I'm sure, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 20, verse 31 says, These are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's one of those things that you just claim for the rest of your life until you die. 1 John 5, and this is the record, verse 11, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. I use this verse all the time. Why? Because there are so many people out there today that, well, I hope I have a home in heaven, or I hope I'll go there when I die, or, you know, I... no, 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 Christian. If you have placed your faith in the name of Jesus Christ for salvation, these things are written that ye may know that you have eternal life. There's no guessing. What's your faith founded on? Whose name do you claim? I'm sure you've encountered people like this. You talk to them about heaven and eternal life and what the Bible says. Well, you know, my parents. Well, you know, my church. Well, I, 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 I'm pretty good. Whose name are you claiming? Because only faith in the name of Jesus Christ leads to salvation. He's the Savior of all men. He's Jesus Christ the Lord. Have you placed your faith in Him? Are you sure? Christians like Peter... We should be deflecting praise. Who gets the credit for the life that you live? It's not your power or holiness or program or whatever, fill in the blank. Our lives should only point others to Christ, to Christ. Maybe you're like the Jews and you're stuck in unbelief. You need to realize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the one and only way to be saved He's the Lord and creator of all. And the best part is he wants you to know him as your savior. He loves you. 
He died in your place for your sin. He rose again three days later and offers you the free gift of eternal life. And he's never once turned anyone away. He promised that he that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. No matter who you are, he's never turned anyone away. And he's inviting you to place your faith in his name for salvation. Do you know the gospel? Have you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you sharing and spreading that gospel? Do you realize where the power really is in the church? You know, we don't need clever ideas. We try to be smart. We try our best to be excellent. But what we really need in the church is men filled with the Spirit of God. And we really need lives transformed by the power of God. One more illustration and I'm done. There was a young missionary by the name of Herbert Jackson. And someone gave this missionary a car to help him in his missionary work. It was a huge asset to the ministry, but the car had one difficulty. It wouldn't start unless, fortunately, it was a stick shift. So he could push it, get a push start or a jump start. But other than that, it just wouldn't start. And so the missionary devised a system to cope with the car's inability to start. When he was ready to leave his home, he would go to a nearby school and ask some of the children to come out of class and push his car so he could pop the clutch and start it. Some of you don't know what that means. Eh? Throughout the day, he was always careful to park on a hill or to leave the engine running if he was only stopping for a short time. For two whole years, the young missionary used what he thought was an ingenious method to enable him to drive this car. Well, soon, poor health forced the Jackson family to leave the missionary field, and a new missionary came to relieve them and, and arrived there at the mission. And when Herbert Jackson was explaining to this new missionary all of his many ingenious methods for starting the car, the young man opened the hood and started inspecting the car. Why, Dr. Jackson, he said, I think your only trouble is this loose cable. And he gave a battery cable a twist, tried the ignition, and the engine roared to life. For two years... For two years, Dr. Jackson had used all of his own methods and devices trying to keep that car going and endured needless trouble when the power to start the car was there all the time. It just needed to have a good connection. How's your connection to Christ? How's your connection to Christ? We endure so much needless trouble trying to come up with ways to get around the simple thing that even the apostles preached. It's not our power. It's not our holiness. It's the name of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads this morning. I have no idea how the Spirit used this message to speak to your heart. But we prayed that He would, so I trust that He did. We want to give you an opportunity now just in the quietness of your seat and your own heart to do business with the Lord. Maybe you have been like that poor missionary running around just trying to be a substitute for a deep personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Why don't you give yourself back to the Lord?
there might be someone here today. Do you know that in my last church, there was a girl that grew up in church, heard the gospel over and over again, was in church all the time with her family. And then one night as the evangelist was preaching, she realized, you know what? I don't think I've ever placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Teenage girl, been in church all of her life, and she got saved. When was your moment where you changed your mind about who Jesus Christ is? We would encourage you, do you want to know what the reaction was of the church? We were thrilled. Nobody said, that girl's been faking this whole time. We were thrilled that she finally knew for sure that she was saved. If you're like that this morning, man, I would encourage you to come and to cry out to Christ. If you have any questions, you need help from the scriptures working through these things, do you realize we would be thrilled to take a Bible, answer any questions you have. Not a single person in this room should leave this place without knowing 100% my sins are forgiven. I have eternal life because I placed my faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Make sure that you know that this morning. However God's leading you, you take this time and do business with him. If you need to come, you come. This moment's for you.